This week, we're talking about non-binary and transparenting with our very first guest outside of Europe. Yes, we're international now. My name is Connor James, and you're listening to The Daddy Issue. beginning of the year, I created an Instagram account for the podcast, and beyond the odd post every now and then, I didn't really use it much. However, one day when I was checking the account, I noticed that we had a direct message. In fact, it was the very first direct message that we'd ever received. It was from Ariel, and they told me that they were looking forward to the show, and were a queer parent themselves, raising their child in California. So, I did what every cool, calm, and collected producer does, immediately replied asking them if they'd like to be on the show. We had a quick intro call and hit it off straight away. I don't know if it's the American accent or Californian sun, but Ariel has a real ease about them, which made them the perfect podcast guest. A few months later, we sat down for an interview on what was a sunny Californian morning and a rainy Dutch evening. We discussed everything, gender, sexuality, society, fertility, health insurance, and of course, parenting too. The result is a broad discussion I feel everyone should be able to relate to and learn from. It was a lot of fun talking to Ariel, so I know you're going to enjoy listening to our conversation too. Thank you so much for your time today uh, and being on the show. And of course, being a parent is a full-time occupation, but I was wondering if you would maybe like to tell listeners a little bit more about yourself and what it is you get up to for a living. Sure. So I'm Ariel. My pronouns are they, them. And I am, besides being a stay-at-home parent, (laughs) I am also an uh, intertidal ecologist So my background is actually teaching high school, but I'm currently uh, going for my master's degree in intertidal ecology. So I study seaweeds, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Actual seaweed? Yeah, seaweed. So that's what my master's project is in. So I go out about, at this point, only maybe a, a couple days a month for my job. Also on my non parenting time and trying to finish this thesis so that I can ever graduate. <laughs> so full time parent, full time scholar, full time seaweed expert. I would say full time parent and very part time everything else. <laughs> <laughs> and people can't see this because yeah, it's a podcast, but you have a really cool hat on, which oh, thank has your you. they them pronouns. Um, that's yeah. really cool. My uh, my husband got this hat for me for my birthday. So, like, a couple weeks ago. <laughs> oh, happy birthday. Happy, well, late happy birthday. Thank you. No, it's really cool. I've never seen them before. That's so handy. I know. He's like, oh, you're labeled now. <laughs> I was like, perfect. 
you've got your labels um yes i think you are setting the trend like this is the evolution of the twitter um pronoun bio maybe like, yeah maybe a beanie <laughs> yeah I, I don't think having a he him pronoun is so like cool but I, I i would like a hat now you deserve a hat i want a hat <laughs> i'll just put mm-hmm. um just gay on it or something i don't know like uh, love it <laughs> yeah if i go to a bar i'll wear that and avoid a lot of confusion <laughs> <laughs> so your family construction is quite unique and it's it's very queer your partner is male but um that isn't the construction that you guys had when you first met right um i mean so Kind of. We did meet at a lesbian meetup, but our very first date, my partner told me that he was trying to get pregnant and also that after he had a kid, he was going to transition. So, I mean, from the beginning, we've known what it was going to be like, you know, but I guess to the outside world, you know, it didn't really look like that, you know. Yeah, because I guess people who are naive would just think, oh, it's a, a lesbian couple at that time. Yeah, I mean, and it was just, that was just kind of like how we presented at the time, and but we always knew that it was going to change. And when you first met, was the whole idea of having kids something that was already on your mind, or was this also kind of, for you, the first time you'd ever thought about parenting as, as a queer person? No, I had definitely thought about being a parent, and, you know, I'm... I don't know what age your other guests are for this podcast, but, you know, when we met, I was, what, 30 and my partner was 36. And so it was interesting because he was actually the first person I'd met who was like ever had I'd met who was trying to like have a kid on his own. And it was interesting to me because that was also kind of my plan. I was like, well, I'm 30. I want kids. I may not have like, you know, a life partner, but, you know, I'm going to probably go back to graduate school and do that. And then after I graduate, I guess I'll just try to have kids on my own. <laughs> so <laughs> so it was interesting to meet him because he was doing that. And I was like super impressed and excited about that. And it did, you know, I mean, a lot of people might have thought our relationship went kind of quickly just because, you know, he was like, I'm going to have this kid and I can't have people popping in and out of my kid's life. So how serious are you about this? You know? Mm -hmm. So we had those conversations pretty early, but you know, for me, it worked out perfectly. It was kind of one of those like dumb magical things where it was like, I kind of knew pretty quickly that I wanted to be with this person like forever, regardless of how any of it worked out, whether or not we had a kid or not, you know? So, you know, it just, I don't want to say it was meant to be, but it kind of felt like that. <laughs> it, it was written in the seaweed. I, that, was, that was such a terrible joke. Yes, written in the seaweed. You can yeah. keep that one. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and before we kind of discuss like how you both create your family in a little bit more detail, I was wondering because we talked obviously before the show and we got to know each other a little bit. And you were to tell me a little bit more about your own journey regarding gender. And I was wondering maybe if we could speak a little bit more about that because I think it's really important that people listening can hear these stories of kind of self-discovery and maybe identify with them or recognize them. So I was wondering, when was it that you kind of began kind of questioning your own identity regarding like gender or sexuality? Yeah. Um, I mean, so I would say that, first of all, for me, it's like an ongoing journey that I'm still kind of figuring out. But, and and they're two very separate things for me. Like, I feel like my sexuality was pretty um pretty straightforward when i figured that out 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> like I, you know, I had this high school boyfriend who I totally adored, um, a cis man who is great. And then, you know, we broke up when we went to college and then like I met this one particular young woman and I was just like, whoa, I think I love you. <laughs> you know, and that was like, <laughs> that was kind of, and I spent like about a couple weeks like freaking out about it and being like, wait, but I don't like not like guys. And then I had to like, you know, discover that being like bisexual was a thing. Yeah. Um, and you know, this was like back in like 2004, you know? So I feel like the words like pansexual weren't so widespread yet. Um, and we like barely had the internet, honestly, (laughs) like (laughs) the internet wasn't like a place where you went to for like a bunch of finding out about yourself at that point, you know? Yeah. So I had to like join the queer straight Alliance at my college and talk to actual people and um yeah I talk so, to actual people there's no google i know <laughs> well i mean okay there was but like kind of barely like you used google when you like you know needed to like figure out how to last minute write your essay you know <laughs> not when you needed to like figure out who you were as a person that sounds very relatable <laughs> so i use the library which is this place where they have these paper things called books oh okay and and i actually went to the library at my college and looked up a bunch of um i took some gender studies classes and i i read a bunch of books by people writing about sexuality and stuff um so my kid has entered the scene just so you know um (laughs) good morning and this is this is logan hey logan and um but bunny i'm gonna talk to connor a little bit longer okay where's your dad he's at work he left you alone (laughs) Oh, you want to be with me. That's what's really happening. I see. You're the favorite right now. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's what happens when you're the stay at home parent is you're like the person. Anyway, the gender story is a little bit, um, I would say like longer for myself. Like, you know, kind of similarly, I didn't even know like that you could be trans until maybe halfway through college. I met someone who was like, yeah, I'm trans. And I was like, what? That's like a thing. And then my definition was very limited at the time. You know, I was like, oh, well, I don't like feel like a man. So I guess I'm not trans, even though like I kind of thought maybe I was for a couple weeks. Yeah. Um, okay. Hang on a second. I don't want you <laughs> Okay, baby. <laughs> See, you wanted a parenting podcast, Connor. This is how it is. I think you have to keep something because that was adorable. So, right. So, like, at the time, I, I, I really still kind of thought of gender as a binary. Like, I didn't realize that, you know, I don't even know if non-binary was a word, really. Like, you know, it, it, was, it certainly <laughs> wasn't, like, widespread. And, you know, it doesn't feel long ago to me, but I guess, what is it, 2021? Like, I guess it was, like, kind of a long time ago, <laughs> you know? And, like, a lot has changed in terms of... It was a little bit ago. <laughs> Whatever. A lot has changed in terms of how widespread these ideas of gender is more of a spectrum or, you know, encompassing a lot more than like this man woman binary. Yeah. Like used to be. So at the time when I was like, you know, 20 or whatever, I was like, oh, well, I guess I'm not trans. Um, I did dress a lot like like a typical guy, I guess. My mom even was like, you know, you can be a lesbian without like dressing like a dude. And I was like, 
whatever, mom. <laughs> I dress how oh, wow. I want. Um, <laughs> and like, you know, and so, so it was kind of an interesting journey because I feel like I didn't think too much more about my gender for a while, kind of because I didn't realize how many options there were, I guess. And I feel like I actually first learned that you could be non-binary from my students. So I taught high school science for six years and um, I taught in the in the Bay Area in California, which if you know anything about being gay in the United States, you know that it's like a super gay place, like San Francisco, <laughs> right? So A very gay place, I've heard, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so uh, which is literally why I moved there. I was like, you know, I've never lived anywhere like super queer. Like maybe that would be fun. So, you know, my students like new things that I didn't know, you know, they were like, oh yeah, I'm non-binary. And I was like, what now? (laughs) And like, um, and that was really kind of at the time, I didn't really apply it to myself, I think, because I was, you know, like a new teacher, which was very overwhelming. And I was mostly trying to like make space for my students and their identities. And eventually I realized, you know what, I like make all this space for other people to like be their own person and express their gender. And I don't really like think about myself. Yeah. Where's your space? (laughs) Yeah. And like, why don't I, you know, I guess I always was kind of like, oh, well, I don't want to like be a bother, you know, and like get people to like change pronouns and like, you know, it doesn't matter that much. And then I was like, you know, why am I thinking like that? Why am I prioritizing all these other people and making sure they're heard and comfortable and out, you know, and then just kind of like ignoring myself? Like, I deserve that too. Yeah. So that was fairly recent, I would say, like just in the last couple of years. Oh, wow. Um, You said like, oh, this is still a journey. I think that's so important because a lot of people feel that their identity is fixed. Mm. What you are today doesn't mean it's what you are tomorrow. Like people, people change. Mm. We're, we're, people are fluids, uh, even if some people don't want to admit that fluidity exists. Um, but I think it's also kind of important maybe to underline. I think you probably agree with me that your gender identity and sexuality are two very separate things because I feel like a lot of people, especially cisgender people, even cisgender gay people, and obviously heterosexual people don't seem to understand that there's a difference between how you identify in terms of gender and how you identify in terms of sexuality. Yeah, totally. People do kind of conflate the two a lot. And I guess like on the one hand, If you're like a straight cis person, you've never thought about any of this. And the fact that, you know, you know, we, I mean, like we have the acronym, you know, LGBTQIA, you know, it's like we, we kind of have placed ourselves under the same umbrella, but gender identity and sexuality are completely different and really have nothing to do with each other beyond just like the name that we use for it, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Like (laughs) whatever gender you are, I guess, then weighs in on what your sexuality is named right (laughs) so like (laughs) but other than that there's no like relation you know yeah no definitely and especially like a lot of people think oh like this person is trans so they like people who are the opposite gender to their gender and it's like no no you can be trans and queer like huh like what yeah yeah like this is you don't have to just pick one acronym from the LGBTQIA. You can you can pick multiple right. if you like. There is no um. This is a spectrum. <laughs> have many letters. <laughs> Choose as many as you like. Yes. <laughs> Maybe that'd be interesting to do like a little research into how many of these can you actually combine. <laughs> <laughs> we 
were talking earlier about when you and um, your is it, is it husband? Are you guys married? We are. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. I didn't know. But I sort of interchangeably use husband and partner. Like I know in a lot of European places, everyone just uses partner. And I kind of prefer that. But I don't know. I always feel like I should like lead with, you know, hey, my partner's a man to like make sure people know, yeah. you know, <laughs> so then husband like communicates that really well. But then but then I get all like, I don't really like the word husband and wife because like it's so like just because of like the patriarchy yeah like the history of the, the patriarchy so i don't know anyway i kind of use them interchangeably though because i know you'd mentioned at some point wanting to talk about like mom's club stuff which i know wasn't what you were trying to talk about right now but it just makes me think of that because that's like the context in which i usually like have to introduce my partner you know yeah. or like just mention him or whatever and it's weird because just depending on what the heck i'm wearing that day you know i can say partner and then people just assume that like my partner is a woman, you know, mm -hmm. or not, you know, depending on literally what I'm wearing. Yeah. If I look more like a quote man or woman, you know, how you present. Right. And so it's like, I feel like I often use husband in those contexts because then everyone's like, okay, partner is a man, but then it's like, they all just automatically stick me in the woman category, you know? Yeah. So it's like every single term feels loaded to me. And I think that's why I switch back and forth. Cause I'm just like, I don't know, dude, we're married. <laughs> <laughs> it's so difficult i think that's the most difficult thing about being queer because on the one hand you do kind of adapt this like naturally apologetic way of introducing yourself because i don't want people to just think i'm the gay guy in the office for example from my own personal experience so i use partner sometimes because i don't want to say my boyfriend to make it really explicit that i'm gay i kind of want to just yeah, leave it there and if people are interested they can find out themselves i don't want to label myself because i don't know how people will respond even in the netherlands you know like i face negativity from my sexuality because it's everywhere but yeah i understand yeah. also like for you like it's loaded because people just assume oh husband okay heteronormative yeah. family construction well and i think too that like especially as a high school teacher you know i was always very clear to be out to my students because i think young people need examples of adults who are queer who like a, have made it through, B, are in normal relationships, you know, yeah. and like C, are just like not afraid to be who they are and not afraid to have people know it, you know, but it like becomes more complicated, you know, because I think kind of along with figuring out my own gender identity was me realizing that me being queer didn't really have anything to do with like who I was with, you know, because like, for example, it's really easy when you have a girlfriend to like drop that, you know, in front of the class at some point just be like oh yeah my girlfriend and then like they're like oh cool my teacher's gay like you know yeah or whatever you know and so starting to really just like own my own queerness and be like oh this is a part of my identity whether or not I'm with someone I can you know come out to students and just be like hi I'm a queer non-binary person or just hi I'm a queer person you know yeah without having to kind of like dance around it was kind of important to learn for me being like oh this is who i am it's yeah. not I, th I think a lot of it has to do with kind of the stereotype of like people are like oh that lifestyle and it's like it's not a lifestyle <laughs> it's who i am this is my identity you know like this is me yeah <laughs> you're like your authentic self i think that's one of the things that straight people maybe will never understand is that we have this constant battle i think most queer people we try to do kind of what you've just said like we want people to know who we are and what we are because we want we want to own our identity but then we also have situations where you can feel so uncertain about yourself because you're in a room full of strangers maybe just a room full of, of men for example and you feel so uh 
yeah, vulnerable because you, you want them to see you as their equal. I don't know how you've experienced this, but personally, like, I've experienced that when I come out as gay, I get seen kind of maybe be seen as a lesser or they kind of, they, they treat me like a woman. Like, if that yeah, makes sense. no, you're 100% correct. And that is not how a woman should be treated either, just to make right. that very, very clear. But you get treated, maybe not as a woman, but you get treated kind of as this in-between. Yeah, I mean, and part of that is this, there's like so much about this, but I feel like part of it is the fact that people are confused about sexuality versus gender, right? And so they're like, oh, you're a man attracted to men. You're now like feminine, you know? And it's like, yeah, <laughs> which then you are then subject to like all the sexism yeah. that is part of society, you know? So it makes sense that you've experienced that and it totally sucks, you know? It's so weird. And as like a white cisgender male, I don't want anybody to get a violin out because I'm fairly sure that my demographic is not as trampled upon as the others. I think it's pretty amazing what you do because I think if I had a teacher like you when I was younger, and you probably feel the same way because I always feel like, as a queer person, also why I'm doing this podcast, I wish that there was a role model mm -hmm. that I could have looked up to as a kid and thought, hey, I identify with that person. Like, it's okay for me to be the way I am. Mm -hmm. Yep. So you are that role model. I try. So when we're talking earlier, you, you mentioned how, you know, when you met with your partner, like he was very clear, like, hey, he wants to have a kid. And once he has had a child, like he wants to transition. Mm -hmm. But how did you like originally process that? Were you like, yeah, okay, cool. Let's go for it. Did you know how this could be realized? Like, did you know at that point how um, you could have children? Like mechanically? Like yeah. The nuts and bolts, like how to actually make it happen. Yeah. When a man loves a woman, Connor, and I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. So, well, so, I mean, I, you know, I asked him, I was like, so what have you been doing? Like, what is your strategy? You know, cause there's a lot of different ways you can do it. Um, and people do all kinds of things and it depends on your situation, you know? So we had a fairly lucky situation if you want to grow your own children, because we had a couple of wombs handy, right? <laughs> and that's like the main thing that we haven't figured out how to replicate scientifically, you know, like, yeah, um, it's, you know, there's a lot of like mystery about it. And as I get more and more into this, like learning about like trying to conceive and stuff, I become more and more convinced that scientists and I say this as a biologist, scientists know basically nothing about human fertility. Um, so it's like there's that's reassuring <laughs> there's so much like guesswork involved and like what works for one person just isn't going to work for other people for like completely inexplicable reasons but so the point is people do all kinds of stuff right and so we tried a few different things and my partner had been trying for a while when I met him and you know this is like his own story and stuff but sort of by the time I came in he'd tried some Mostly anonymous donors, because using a known donor has a lot of advantages, but it can also just be harder to find like a good one <laughs> in terms of like, yeah. you know, <laughs> what's going to work for your family and your kids and just everything. So a known donor is somebody who like you would keep in contact with or right. just you would be able to pass their information on to the child if they requested it. Either. Or I guess you can figure people it out yourself. Do it in okay. Yeah, people do it in different ways. Um, and, you know, I mean, I feel like an interesting group of people to seek out for your podcast might be donor conceived children because they have their own opinions about this. And a lot of people, especially people who were deceived by their parents and didn't know that they were donor conceived, 
you know, or found out later through like doing a DNA test or something, it's really hard for them. And they feel very like cut out from half of their DNA. And it feels very important to them to like, you know, have known where they came from in that way. So, you know, I mean, I feel like a lot of people agree that if you can find somebody to give you the gametes you need, who's going to stay in touch with your family in some way as maybe like a family friend or uncle or whatever. A lot of people feel like that works really well for their kids. And we actually sort of looked into this route. So we talked to my brother about potentially being uh, a donor for us. And, um, you know, we like took him out to sushi and had a nice dinner. And it was kind of like a date with my brother, which was not weird at all. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, you know, and, and it was kind of interesting because we were all sort of considering this idea. And then all three of us separately, like for our own reasons, we're like, you know what? I don't think we want to go this route. Um, yeah. My brother was, you know, he felt like he would have a hard time not feeling like a parent to this kid. And he didn't want to be a parent. He was like, I'm not ready to be a parent. He's younger than I am. Yeah, he felt a little bit too close, maybe. Yeah, and like for me, I was like, you know what? If I wanted to raise kids with like my siblings, I would just raise kids with my siblings, but I don't want to. I have this partner who, you know, I love and want a family with. Yeah. You know, and then my partner had his own reasons and everything. So we ended up using a a sperm bank here in California. And our just the way this sperm bank is set up is the donor is anonymous. However, at age 18, our kid can get their contact information and stuff, um, okay. which I think is great. Like if that's what my kid, I want, I want to be able to um, support my kid in tracking this person down if that's what they want to do, you know? Yeah. So that's the route we went. Then you have to be like, oh, do I want to like try to inseminate at home or do I want to like go through a fertility clinic, you know? And we actually tried both those ways. We had a really terrible experience with a fertility clinic um, and tried one cycle through them. I'm sorry to hear. <laughs> um, yeah, it was like, yeah, I'm happy to talk more about it if you want. Um, no, yeah. Well, what made it so terrible? So first of all, it was just all the ways that a fertility clinic is uncomfortable in general, right? You go in there and you're like, you know, and they basically are trying to figure out like why you're infertile, which for us kind of felt like, well, we lack sperm. So, you know, <laughs> and yeah, it's not difficult. <laughs> well, and then it was like, you know, a lot of fertility clinics just seem to have zero training about queer people. So like, like the nurse. So, you know, I had to get all of these tests too, even though like I was biologically not involved. Right. But they wanted to give me STD tests just because if like my partner and I were having sex, they wanted to make sure that I couldn't transmit anything to the baby, you know? So I got those tests and then they had to get like blood tests and stuff. And I was like, okay, sure. I just remember when the nurse was like taking my blood, she like, then was like looking at the paperwork and she was like, we still need your sperm sample. And then she looked at me and then looked totally confused. And I was like, yeah, that's not good. Yeah. The paperwork doesn't work. Uh. So <laughs> no. So, like, and then fertility, like, it's like you run into so much stuff about again, sexism, right. And just how this weird picture of a, what a woman is supposed to be and b what a person who is going to be pregnant is supposed to be. Right. So like, you know, yeah. like, I just remember this this doctor was like, well, you have like a lot of facial hair and that could be a sign of this one syndrome. And my partner was like, well, I've seen my labs. All my numbers are totally normal. And you know what's also normal? Facial hair on women. They just pluck it, <laughs> you know? like <laughs> Yeah, you know, that reminds me of a story. Um, this might make you cringe, but there's a story. I don't know where it is. I saw this on the internet somewhere, but it was written by a man about a woman and the woman was called... And he wrote that her breasts 
contracted into her body um, because uh, men have um, things called testicles um, and when a man gets cold, they contract towards their body. I'm sorry if this is too much information no. for anybody listening, but this man writing the book I just assumed that the boobs are the female version nice. of testicles and behave the same way. That's amazing. <laughs> wow. Oh, okay. To be a heterosexual man. <laughs> Honestly, no, that's fine. I'll pass. So you're facing all of this sexism and stuff in the clinic. And I, I guess I was just making you both really uncomfortable. Well, yes. And then on top of that, it's this is like a super dramatic, like, version of you know a fertility clinic experience but basically long story short we ended up running into one of the nurses from the fertility clinic Mm -hmm. after we'd actually had this kid and um and you know our cycle through the clinic was unsuccessful and they expected us to come back from another cycle and we're like no we'll just try at home a little bit more um which is what eventually worked we just did at home insemination and you know yeah that's how we got our kid but you know but this nurse was like yeah that doctor like literally will throw the first cycle like he'll, if he thinks you're likely to come back for a second cycle, he will on purpose mess up the first time. Oh, damn. So you have to pay the like $6,000 again for a second cycle. That's crazy. Like, yeah. um, I think it's worthwhile people, well, you're in America, so it's kind of a different world. Only the ethics um, should be the same globally. It is. No, that's, that's, uh, that's kind of, dis- that is disgusting um, to hear that. No, I mean, it is. I think that's a super important point though, like, because it's a privately owned clinic, you know? not covered by our crappy insurance system (laughs) that we had you know like you're paying out of pocket for this private clinic most insurance won't cover fertility treatments in the u.s yeah um so yeah so it's like he could do stuff like that you can take advantage of you yeah um well we didn't go back so no of course (laughs) but apparently he was taking advantage of people you know and like that's just to me that's just so wrong but anyway my point is we did eventually do at-home insemination using donor sperm they like mail it to your house and it's in this like cool super high tech like you know how like in in a star wars where han solo gets frozen yeah that's like where the sperm is it's this cool like metal container and you like open it and like all of the like the smoke comes out yeah dry ice gas comes out and you you know you reach in and there's a little sperm sample and then and so you know then you have to like defrost it in your hand you know just like you're in a lab and and with home insemination how long did it take you guys to successfully conceive um let's see we'd had that on that fertility clinic experience and like February or something and I feel like I feel like we like took a few months off and maybe tried like two more cycles after that so um so then my husband was pregnant in like June basically um but he'd been trying for like years prior and part of the reason one thing we did learn from the fertility clinic is we learned about like blood type and how that can affect a pregnancy so that was really useful to know that we needed a donor of a different blood type and basically as soon as we use that donor at home then it worked <laughs> so I, i'm a gay guy so this is all um new to me and i'm not a scientist so the blood type of the egg and the sperm should be different to make it more likely to be successful so okay so you know how you can have like positive or negative blood types yeah so basically like if you have a specific negative blood type, then depending on the situation, like if you've had a previous unsuccessful pregnancy or something, um, then if you try to get pregnant with sperm that is a different, like that is a positive blood type, mm-hmm. um, 
then your body will basically treat the pregnancy like a disease and try to get rid of it. <laughs> so, what? so you need to, so, you know, you just need to kind of look into if that could impact your pregnancy if you're trying to get pregnant. Yeah. The RH factor is what it's okay. called. It's the RH factor. So. so that's something which I guess doesn't impact everybody, but yeah, it doesn't probably very useful to know if you're trying home insemination and it's not working exactly. because you wouldn't exactly. necessarily naturally assume, Hey, let's check the blood type of the donor. Yep. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. Now, you know, we're, we're trying for a second one now, um, for me to get pregnant and, um, we've been trying for a year unsuccessfully and my blood type is positive. So that can't be an explanation. So like I said, fertility is a whole mystery. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't raise you, you were trying for a child. So first off, yeah, good luck. And I, I hope, I hope to hear some exciting news on that, uh, at some point. And that's also something which, I think a lot of people take for granted that I know, especially um, for people with a womb in general, so regardless of your gender expression or um, sexual identity, like getting pregnant isn't an easy thing. It's um, it's not like the birds and the bees or in the movies like these. Yeah, for some people it is, of course. And maybe we hear that mm-hmm. more often. But the more I talk to people um, like you, especially on the show, like the more I hear that, oh, it, it takes three or four or five sometimes six attempts sometimes it takes many years 13 or (laughs) yeah and sometimes of course uh, unfortunately there's miscarriages which occur far more frequently than you would ever expect because we just don't talk about it i know no this isn't an advertisement break i'm not going to try and sell you a mattress yet but i am going to ask you to rate and review this podcast on your podcasting app as well as subscribe to the show if you haven't already not only will you get a little notification when a new episode drops but you'll help increase our visibility too if you really want to keep on top of the show then you should follow us on social media we're available on instagram at the daddy issue pod twitter at daddy issue pod and you can find us on facebook too by searching for the daddy issue All of these links are available on our website too, which is thedaddyissue.org. Thank you so much for your support. Now, back to this week's episode. You guys got pregnant, and uh, of course, what happens when somebody gets pregnant, they give birth, and... I, I remember we talked a little bit about this, but you had a pretty um, unique birth experience, right? You, you guys did a home birth. Yeah, we did. We, and so our, our plan was to be at home as long as possible and maybe even just do the whole thing at home. And I pretty much deferred to my partner for all of the birthing stuff because, you know, I feel like it's the person giving births, you know, prerogative to like yeah. do that experience how they want to, you know, but it was a little bit complicated because you know, he actually went into labor five weeks before the due date. So it was pretty early. Okay. So we actually tried to go to a hospital, even though that wasn't our original plan. And they were like, oh, you know, you have to lay here in this bed until you give birth. And we were like, um, yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> because, cause, you know, I don't know what things are like in Europe, but in the U.S., like, hospital births are still very medicalized. And they try to like do interventions pretty frequently, you know, and they like want you to like lay in bed to be like monitored at most hospitals. And and that's not really how the body is designed to give birth. Mm -hmm. You know, my partner is very committed to like a natural childbirth. And so we went home. We're like, well, we'll just go home 
and come back when it's like closer to time. And we thought we yeah. had hours, you know, because the stories are all like, oh, like 20 quadrillion hours of labor, <laughs> whatnot. But but like, you know, we went home from the hospital and like four hours later, this child was born. <laughs> so. Um, oh, wow. OK, that was quick. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, so we didn't have time to go back to the hospital and, you know, it was pretty ideal. Like, so we had purchased a, a birthing tub, actually, we had one in our house. So we went home from the hospital and I, you know, set up the birthing tub and, and, you know, people need different things when they're birthing a child. So my partner pretty much just like, didn't want to be like bothered, which I feel like I'm going to be totally the same way. Cause when I'm sick, I'm like, don't talk to me. Don't touch me. Leave me alone in this dark room. You know, um, I'll figure it out myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But you know, but some people need different things, you know? So I was trying to really be like what he needed. And so I just had a little app on my phone so I could time contractions because the timing of contractions is like, as it gets closer together, you know, is when the baby's going to come more quickly or whatever. Yeah. And I was like, Hey, this is like, they're coming pretty quickly, but it hasn't been that long. So I don't know what's going on. <laughs> and so, you know, so I set up the birthing tub, like he'd, he'd made a color coded checklist for me because we're that kind of people. <laughs> so, you know, I like went through the checklist. I'm like, okay, inflate birthing tub, like, <laughs> you know, fill up birthing tub, get out towels. Like, you know, like I, I was like so grateful for this checklist. I can hear the noise of you putting your foot down on the uh, inflatable pump. <laughs> okay. It's an electric pump. It's not quite the dark ages here, but <laughs> you plug it in. <laughs> So at some point he was like, the baby's here. And I was like, oh my God, we need to go to the hospital. And he was like, no, like she's here right now. And I was like, what? And I, you know, like reached down and felt her little head in my palm. And like my other hand, I was like, oh my God. And I like dialed 911 with my other hand. And I'm like, there's a baby here. Um. So anyway, she was born and it was like amazing. And, you know, it took the paramedics a good half hour to get there, which is hilarious. I'm like, okay, what's the point of Oh, a long time. a long time, you know, which honestly was awesome because we had this just lovely period of time where the baby was born and we put her on my partner's stomach and she like looked up at us with her little eyes and like blinked and she like wiggled up and tried to start nursing and, you know, she didn't cry or anything. It was a pretty magical 20 to 30 minutes. And, uh, you know, it was a little bit nerve wracking because she was very small because she was five weeks early. So she was, but she wasn't like that small. She was only five pounds, but she was like 19 inches long. <laughs> She's still tall. So <laughs> it just felt very like calm. Yeah. And, uh, and then the paramedics came and it was kind of hilarious because um, <laughs> when my partner and I talk about this, like we just remember how, like how good looking they were. It was just like all these like tall, like muscly men with like you know oh so it is like the tv shows no it really was and they were and they oh, like wow. came in and they had like no idea what to do you know they like tried to like cut the cord and like totally messed it up so i had to do it for them <laughs> you know and they were confused when they came in they thought i was like a midwife at first and then they realized that i was the other parent the head paramedic was like oh you're just the freaked out dad right now and i was like yes i am just the freaked out dad right now and he was like i've been there <laughs> you know and so, so then we got to you know I don't know, go on a ride to the hospital and everything eventually turned out fine. <laughs> but yeah, it was a whole experience. <laughs> what was it like becoming a mother then? How did how did that feel? Can you even describe like, how that felt? Like were you two both becoming parents at the same time? Yeah. Um... <laughs> it's hard to describe, apparently. I think like a couple moments come to mind. Like, like I remember, so, 
you know, our baby ended up spending about six days in the uh, neonatal ICU. But like, Mm -hmm. she was like, totally fine. It was really just because she was born so early, they like had to admit her or something. But and then my partner had some other issues that had to be dealt with. He actually had to have a surgery and a bunch of stuff. Um, So it was kind of a stressful week um, where they were both in the hospital. And um, yeah. And I remember like, I could have one person in the NICU with me. So I remember my sister was there and they'd finally told me like I could hold her. I didn't realize that like they took her out and handed her to me. And <laughs> and I'd held her before, like I held her in the in the ambulance and whatnot. But and they're like, hey, we can take her out and you can hold her. She's like, fine. <laughs> and I was like, oh, cool. And then my sister was like, you know, you can sing to her. And I was like, oh my God, I can. And I just like remember singing like the first lullaby to her, like, and it like crying, <laughs> just like, it was like, I was like, oh my God, this is like my baby. Oh, wow. Yeah. I feel like that was kind of my first real, like becoming a mother moment, but you know, like it was like an adjustment, you know? And I think for me, I had a lot of insecurity in the first month, especially not being biologically, you know, connected and I feel like a lot of queer parents go through this same thing yeah where I was just like I just worried you know like oh am I ever gonna be like really feel like a parent like am I gonna ever really feel equal to my partner in terms of being a parent and all this stuff but you know the truth is I feel like every couple in that first month adjustment of having a kid is gonna have some kind of struggle And what that struggle is just depends on that family, you know? So for me, it was like feeling insecure about, am I really going to be viewed as her parent by her and the world? Yeah. And the fact is that went away like pretty quickly, (laughs) especially after my partner went back to work. Then I became the full-time stay-at-home parent. Um, And as you can see now, I'm, (laughs) she's very attached to me, (laughs) age three. (laughs) (laughs) I can hear in the background just a little bit there. I guess it's kind of funny, right? That when we talk about, parenting with my partner we talk a little bit about like the whole genetic side i find it kind of weird it's natural that that's a worry but it's also kind of strange that like queer Mm -hmm. people we make our own families kind of you know when we come out we choose our family maybe more than most people but then at the same time yeah we have this kind of worry but i suppose there's imposter syndrome and everybody gets it um i've spoken to straight friends who had kids and they have also like obviously not the same concerns that perhaps a queer person would have but they're like, yeah, I'm freaking out because I'm, I'm scared that they're just going to stop breathing or that I'm going to do totally. something wrong and I'm going to hurt them or the milk is too warm and everything I'm doing is wrong. From what I've heard anyway from everybody so far is that kids don't have any kind of instruction manual and <laughs> that they kind of just do their own thing and will, yeah, will stress you out yeah. no matter how prepared you are. They'll find a way. Yeah, and, you know, that whole being afraid they're going to stop breathing thing, I remember – one of the other moments where I was like, holy crap, I'm a parent was like talking to my dad. And I was like, dad, am I just going to like feel afraid in the background every second of my life for the rest of my life now? And he was like, yes, yes, you are. And I was like, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So that feeling, because whenever we have like, uh, it's not very often, but whenever my niece is around, um, I just see that everything in the apartment suddenly becomes dangerous. Like every every yeah. power outlet is like a death trap. Every yeah. bench has a sharp corner. That never goes away then. It's definitely a little bit less, I would say. Um, but yeah, no, apparently, I mean, I'm what, I'm 35 now. My dad's like, yeah, I'm still terrified about you getting hurt. <laughs> I'm like, okay, great. <laughs> My mum is the same way, but I, I don't blame her because uh, I'm very good at like <laughs> falling over. and <laughs> It's a skill of mine. 
I was wondering if you don't mind, um, you're obviously in America, so your healthcare system is privatized and there's insurance, but in terms of the financial side of this, which I think is the bit that people really don't like to talk, like ask about, but it is. maybe for queer people, it's kind of important. How did this work? Were you guys able to at least have some of these costs covered by, um, in the form of insurance? Oh, was a lot of it kind of out of pocket expenses? I mean, all of the getting pregnant stuff was out of pocket, but everything else is, you know, we have pretty excellent insurance through my husband's work. So that has thankfully not been something we have to worry about. You do now in the US have to have insurance or you you have to like, you know, pay a fine when you like pay your taxes. Um, So that is a thing just in the last 10 years or so. But not all employers offer insurance, right? So you have to like go and find your own um, (laughs) or just pay the fine. So for us, we have pretty good insurance and don't so much have to worry about that. But again, you know, it's tied in with my husband's employer. So like if for whatever reason he lost his job, we'd have to be like, oh, we got to find insurance now, you know, Um, and that is a little scary. Yeah. And was that something you worried about a lot during the pregnancy that if something was to happen with his work that you'd have to like suddenly find money or an insurance company? I mean, for me, like to be completely honest, like a huge reason I became a high school teacher is because I knew I could always get a job with insurance. So I'm fully confident that if he did lose his job, I could get a job teaching science like tomorrow and our family would have insurance. However, not all families like have that, you know, option or expertise or whatever. Yeah. So that's, that's crazy to think that it is crazy. It's totally crazy. We didn't have health insurance when I was growing up. My parents didn't have jobs that offered health insurance. So again, you know, that influenced my career decisions a lot where I was like, yeah, I want to always have a paycheck. I want to always have insurance. Yeah. Because <laughs> I don't want my kids, like it was stressful as a child to have my parents not have insurance. Like I knew, you know, kids know stuff. Um, I was like, better not get hurt because we can't go to the doctor. <laughs> you know, um, this podcast obviously isn't about like politics or different countries' insurance systems. I'm from the UK originally. So until I moved to Netherlands, where we have like a very tightly state controlled private system, which is kind of publicly funded, it's very confusing. We have mandatory insurance and it's very affordable. I think I pay maybe a hundred and like $40 a month for my insurance, for example. And that covers pretty much everything um, apart from like physiotherapy and stuff like that. In the UK, however, we have the National Health Service, um, which is just free. You, yeah, you pay tax, of course, but I'd never had to consider ever the cost of my medication. And, and when it comes to getting a job, that was also never a concern. And the Netherlands is also not a concern. So it's kind of, it's crazy. You're not the first American I've spoken to who said this, but I still find it really kind of um, strange to hear when people say, you know what, this job gives me good insurance. Um, yep. Uh, which is also why Breaking Bad would not have worked in a European <laughs> country. Like, <laughs> um, to kind of make light of it, but really good to hear that you guys had insurance which paid for this because I, I know how, um, well, yep. I don't know personally, but I know how difficult that can be. But I suppose if a family didn't have insurance, then this probably wouldn't even be an option for them, I guess. It would just be too too risky, too expensive, or they just have a lot of money and just don't pay insurance. <laughs> well, that's when people wouldn't pay for sperm. You know, a lot of people like there's websites you can go on or like Facebook groups for like people to be known donors for your family or whatever. Mm-hmm. And some people have really good experiences with that. <laughs> free sperm this maybe sounds really typical of a man but can i ask about the sperm um like uh 
how much does it cost to get sperm samples in the states it depends on the bank so for the one we use one little vial <laughs> that's like for one insemination one time is yeah. like um maybe nine hundred dollars um oh my god wow so if you so it adds up you know <laughs> it adds up um, I'm guessing the sperm donor is not getting that $900. I have no idea, to be honest. Like, that would be another interesting person to have on your on your podcast. I have no idea how that works. Yeah, well, I want to look into this. I know that donating your eggs, you can get paid really well. Because um, I thought about it, like, in my 20s. I was like, hmm, maybe I should donate some eggs <laughs> get for rich, quick an extra, yeah. you know, $10,000 or whatever. <laughs> But, um, so I know you get paid for that, but I don't know. I honestly don't know very much about sperm donation. No, sperm donation is really, um, it's for a different episode, but I, I know there's also in Europe and some countries, this um, list of like exclusive sperm donors and you can pay maybe 3000 euros to make sure that you're the only person they ever donate to. Wow. Um, I, yeah. It's kind of like an only fans for sperm, um, <laughs> which probably sounds very, people listening are thinking, what the hell are you on about? Um, if this does make the final cut, but no, it's a different story for a different day. I, um, but I think maybe there's also, you know, you, this, this cost of sperm, this should maybe be proof to heterosexual people that when queer people decide to start a family, they're really serious about this. They're not, yeah. this isn't just messing around. Like this is a, like a military operation, it's true. which in some countries has an incredibly high price tag. That's not to say that I don't want people to think that the price is like the important thing about queer parenting. But it is a limitation. Like it's a limitation to how long you can try. You know, you can't try every single cycle, you know, your whole fertile window, you know, to conceive. Like, yeah. you can't, you just can't do that. It's not feasible. You're like, well, I'm going to try to, like, pick the best day to, like, do this. And fingers crossed, <laughs> you know. I kind of want to talk a little bit now about your partner's transition. Of course, I know it's not your story. I know that he's fine with you telling a little bit about it. How did that work in terms of your family construct? Like, as a couple with a child, how do you approach a transitioning like all the extra levels of complication because a child is now involved i mean our kid was so little like he transitioned when she was one he sort of came out to everyone you know yeah so it just feels like not really an issue for our family in particular just because the way he is is all my kid has ever known you know i mean certain things are kind of hilarious like literally last week I had to switch out some photos in our in our house because um there was a picture of me and my partner from our like engagement photo shoot, and um my kid was like, "That's you, mommy," and I was like, "Yeah, who's that?" You know, pointing at my partner, and she was like, mm, "That's your friend," and like you know, your friend named Allison, who's like another friend of mine, and um yeah, and I was like, mm, "Okay, it's time to switch the pictures." <laughs> You know, so <laughs> at the point where your own kid like isn't recognizing her parent in the picture, you know, you got to update. Yeah. So, you know, but I mean, other than that, it's like we let our kid name us really. So, mm -hmm. you know, she just like decided I was mama and my partner was dada. He was going for a different name. Um, but that's just like what she decided because those are like the first sounds a kid <laughs> makes, you know. Um, yeah. And so that's just what we're called. <laughs> so for us, it, it like honestly hasn't been remotely complicated. <laughs> so, and like the legal side, when if you change on your oh, gender yeah. in the States, is, is there any kind of implications in terms of custody um, or like the recognition that, hey, mm. uh, maybe my gender is now different on this piece of paper, but this is still 
my child. Totally. That's a great question because yeah, all of that's super weird. So, <laughs> so like an example of how complicated that kind of is, is, um, we all just got updated passports for our family. We got our kid one, um, you know, so we could flee the country if we needed to. I didn't know who's going to get elected in November. And, <laughs> but so, <laughs> so, you know, that was complicated because like, along with everything you have to send in proof of name change, because my partner's old name is on our kid's birth certificate. And so mm-hmm. at this point, he's had all of his own information changed and it's on our marriage certificate too. So he's had all his own information changed, like his birth certificate and stuff, but it's harder to get your kid, like you, there's no way to like change it on your kid's birth certificate or your marriage certificate. You just have to like basically always also submit your name change paperwork. So it does get a little bit complicated. Luckily, there are ways to get it done. And we, you know, the person helping us with our passport stuff was super awesome. I think he maybe was family too. He seemed kind of gay to me, but, <laughs> you know, my gaydar was like, ding, ding, ding. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he was like super chill about the whole thing. And he just made sure we had all the paperwork we needed. And I was really grateful for that because, you know, like weirdly, it just depends on the person. He could easily have been some conservative person who was like, ooh, I don't want to do this, you know? Yeah, <laughs> and, and so, makes it bureaucratic and difficult. Right. So we got lucky, I think. Um, but yeah, it is kind of weird. And I mean, all of that's a whole conversation, you know, like legally speaking, I should adopt my kid, like just in case, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's just something we haven't done yet. So yeah, I mean, I guess it is pretty complicated. So legally right now, um, we can say that... Um, your husband is the legal guardian of, of your child and you're of course the mother, but you're not a legal guardian yet until you do the adoption. Yeah. yeah. It's weird because I am on her birth certificate. So we're both on her birth certificate. Okay. However, in some, so here's where the U S is weird again, in some States, that's not technically like a legal document, I guess. Like it doesn't prove somebody, basically if something happened to him, theoretically, like his mom could come and try to take the kid, you know, (laughs) from me. And it would be a legal battle. I feel like particularly in California where we live, I feel like I would probably win that battle, but it would be easier if I just adopted her because then there wouldn't be a battle, you know? Is that something you're going to do maybe one day or? Yeah, it's on our, it's on our to-do list. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The queer to-do lists. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Adopt my own kid. <laughs> In terms of kind of like uh, the current challenges maybe that you face, like your partner now identifies as male. So do you feel like a part of kind of the parental community or do you kind of find it kind of difficult sometimes? You have the mom's club who get together and, and have, I don't know, mimosas or something. This may been very stereotypical. Bloody Mary's. Uh, yeah. Bloody okay, yeah. I, I only know from Netflix what happens in America. Have you struggled sometimes maybe to find kind of your community as, as a queer parent? Definitely. Yes, I have struggled to find my community as a queer parent. I was able to find like our local mom's club. And it's weird because it's like, yes, I am a mom, but I'm also not like I don't I'm not a woman, but they all are. You know, and it's like weird because it's like in some ways, like the club is pretty cool in a lot of ways. Like there's a lesbian couple that is in it, which I don't think is in every mom's club. And there's someone who's adopted their children, which is pretty cool because I'm not the only one who's not like a biological parent, you know, like that's pretty cool. But I feel awkward because like being there often because I'm like, well, I don't really like feel like a woman 
and you know, but it's not really the type of space that's like when everyone introduces themselves, everyone's going to share their pronouns. And then I feel super awkward. Like, I don't want to like make people think me and my kid are weird by being like, hey, here's my pronouns. Everyone share yours too. <laughs> blah, blah. You know, it's harder for me to be a queer activist for myself than it was for like my students, you know? Yeah. And I don't really know why that is other than just like, I don't know. I'm not sure why that is, why it's harder to do it for myself, but, um, but it is. And I've made a couple good friends through that group, honestly, but it would be nice if there were some other queer parents around to be friends with. I can imagine it's something I've also kind of thought about, like, hey, if I become a dad, like, will I be like the only gay dad who's picking that kid up from school? And am I going to have to kind yeah. of like repeat my story all the time to everybody? Yeah. Or do I, people well, be like, oh, how's that mom? <laughs> especially pre-COVID, you know, in my sister's family, she her baby's one. She and her husband are cis straight people but they're sort of flipped in that my sister is the primary income for the family and so my brother-in-law theoretically you know if my sister ever goes back to like working in person but <laughs> but you know he'll be like a stay-at-home parent you know and so at one point I like asked the mom's club people I was like hey can my brother-in-law like join because he's like a stay-at-home parent and they're like mm, like I guess if your sister joins then he could like bring the kid by himself it was just like oh. wow like this really isn't like a stay-at-home parent group it's like a women parent group you know a cisgender women club kind of and so that was kind of like made me sad <laughs> why can't we just have like a stay-at-home parent group or like a kid's yeah. group you know it's just so weird that it's still so like divided and like binary in some ways we've moved so far in society but in terms of the family unit we've kind of kept it to the nuclear family from like pre-war maybe that'll change the more queer people become parents maybe we can kind of force that through and maybe you and your brother-in-law can create the parents club one day which is kind of like a a, a cooler version of the breakfast club maybe yeah, um, <laughs> i don't know if it's possible to be cooler than the breakfast club but we can try you could try it's a shame that you've faced that and i really hope that you find like a group that you can identify with or you can maybe help the mom's club <laughs> maybe they're listening yeah. um <laughs> diversify what advice do you have for young queer people or you know older queer people age doesn't matter who are parents or want to be parents about this whole subject and also straight people i'm assuming they're listening to <laughs> uh, yeah i mean i felt like the most important thing i thought of was as a parent i try really hard to be patient with my kid and it's sometimes harder to remember to be patient with myself too and I think that's important to remember. You're going to like mess up and do things the wrong way. And like, that's okay. You know, we all are going to make mistakes and want to do something differently. And we can, you know, yeah. like, tomorrow's another day, you know? Um, I mean, I think the fact is like, if you, you know, you can always change how you're doing things and depending on your kid's age, you can always be like transparent with them about that. You know, um, that's why I taught high school. I was like, Hey, you know, this isn't working for me or the class right now. And I'm sorry, I tried to do it this way. And let's try this from now on, you know? And I think modeling, like learning and growing for your kids is probably one of the best things you could do for them. Yeah. I don't know that I have any advice specifically for queer people other than just try to remember that like, you yourself are an individual person outside of being a parent and try to find outlets for that. For example, I recently, during the pandemic, decided to get into doing drag. <laughs> so, so, you oh, know, wow. 
this thing like for me is like oh I'm learning about like how to do drag and like how to do drag king makeup and like (laughs) yes I'm a parent and I have a million things going on but I'm trying to like continue to make space for like myself and my identity and things that are fun and expressing myself and I think all of that makes you a better parent. Ariel um just thank you so much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and I've learned a lot and yeah I I think you're a really inspiring person and your students are very lucky your child too and your partner so just thank you so much I really enjoyed this conversation and I really hope the listeners appreciate your openness and have learned something today. Thanks, Connor. It's been like, honestly, super fun. So uh, I look forward to hearing all the rest of your podcast. Talking to Ariel made me realize that there is a broad spectrum of queer parents we rarely discuss. I was a little worried when I started the podcast that things were getting out of hand as I searched for every type of family construct I could think of. Now, looking back, I'm so glad I've had people like Ariel on the show, and I look forward to introducing you to even more forms of family in the coming episodes. We may only be five episodes in, but I've been working on the show for eight months now. So, before we begin our journey into the world of surrogacy, we're going to have a quick break. Don't worry, it's only for one week, and if you're new to the show, there's four more episodes that you can enjoy. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on social media. We're beginning to pop up in online publications and have some exciting collaborations planned for later in the year. And if you follow us on social media, you'll be one of the first to hear about them. Before we go, don't forget to recommend the show to someone you think will enjoy it too. It doesn't matter if they're gay, straight, young or old. The Daddy Issues mission is to reach as many people as possible and open their eyes up to the world of rainbow families. Thank you so much for your support. My name is Connor James, and you've been listening to The Daddy Issue. Issue is an independent podcast produced and presented by me, Connor James. Music by Willem de Boy. Fact checking and editorial support from Emma Vogt. Our original artwork is by the incredible K Toys. A very special thank you for their enthusiasm and openness goes to our special guest, Ariel. Ariel, if you're listening, your students have the coolest science teacher in California. We're available on Instagram at the Daddy Issue Pod, Twitter at Daddy Issue Pod, and you can find us on Facebook too by searching for The Daddy Issue.